Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Happy Pride, New York City. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. This week, America divides further on immigration as ICE agents separate children from their parents who cross the border illegally. A special guest will be joining us from the front lines of the immigration crisis. Objection to the Rule starts right now. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, news and politics with the occasional NYPD siren. Ori <laughs> and Violet will be joining us soon. And our summer intern, Ellie, are your hosts along with me, Rosie. Thanks for coming into the studio today. Hey, everyone. Hi there. This week, America is in the eye of the immigration storm. The president's zero tolerance policy has resulted in children seized from their parents at the southern border. One reported as young as nine months old. More than 350 children have been housed in one East Harlem facility in New York City. The Pentagon has been asked to shelter the seized children in a request for 20,000 beds at old military bases. At least 2,300 children have been separated from their parents since May. Days after the president signed an executive order to cease separating children from their parents if they crossed the border illegally, Melania torched shelters for immigrant children separated from their parents. The biggest statement of her trip was an army green parka with white graffiti that read, I really don't care. Do you? Let's save the parka for last. The magnitude of the children separated from their parents at the border is shocking. Why are we housing them in military bases and shipping them all the way to New York City? Trump signed an executive order to stop this. Shouldn't we be reuniting them with their parents? Let's be real. Who tears nine-month-old babies from their parents? Uh, from their parents? Ori, go ahead. So there's so many different layers to what is happening right now. There are conflicts over policy. There's a lot of finger-pointing. There are a lot of feelings about how we should maintain our borders. And at the end of it all are a whole bunch of vulnerable people that just came to this country seeking opportunities or escaping persecution or violence in their home countries. And it seems like we aren't focusing on that, but we are focusing on the political tug of war over immigration policy. How did we get to the point where we have all of these children being held away from their parents? How did we build an immigration industrial complex that is now profiting off of migrant children? How did we get to this point? And how did we as a public kind of not see it happening? It's really interesting that you say that because, um, a lot of this policy started happening a couple of months ago. And it isn't until now that we've become aware that children are being taken from their parents and thousands of them, not just like a few. And what I've struggled with is trying to understand 
how this policy is supposed to help immigration or reform immigration. Well, wasn't it reported that a senior policy advisor wanted this policy implemented specifically to curtail immigration as if this, you know, idea that, well, if we separate parents from children, maybe it will prevent people from wanting to cross the border. Uh, I, I don't know if that's exactly the right way to try to change behavior or policy, but it, it seems like this administration in trying to, I don't even know what the, the reason is or the, the impetus is, but is trying to change the makeup of how we treat our most vulnerable citizens, those the most vulnerable residents, people that are coming here trying to rebuild their lives. Well, you know, if they wanted to uh, to reform immigration and 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 be strict, I thought, you know, if they seize these people, why don't they just send all of them back instead of what would be the purpose of taking the children? Is that supposed to be a punishment? You think? Well, I want to go back to that point about the what I'm I'm calling the immigration industrial complex. We have built a profitable machine to handle our immigrants, our you know, people that are being detained after crossing the border, there is money being made off of this, just like in prisons. You know, the more people that get put in prisons, the more money is being made by people that are building prisons. Our for-profit prisons are growing. These are for-profit detention centers, a lot of them. There are many people that are being held in, you know, county jails and city jails and, and homes for children, things like that. But there are also a good number of for-profit detention centers. You know, the deep issue with that is that if, uh, if in the United States, if you want to, by law, if you want to work in a daycare center or in a school, even if you're just coming in to assist the teacher, any staff in a school that come in any contact with children have to get a uh, cer- uh, certification, which is requires them to go get fingerprinted. Background they check. get background check. Yeah. And then they are eligible to, after they're uh, clear, they can now work with children in any capacity. I don't, they, I don't know the people who are taking care of the children that we're taking are, would be qualified to take uh, care of American children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, and I thought we, um, and why would we send children to a military base? I don't think that they have a nursery there. And there's been reports that some of the facilities the children in are so overcrowded, they don't even, they can't even play. They're just bunched into a space. Well, there have been so many reports of legislators and politicians going to visit some of these locations. And some of the stories that are coming back are very disheartening. It's not like, you know, it's bad enough that people are being separated, that children are being separated from their parents. It's even worse that these children are being detained in conditions that are unacceptable, you know, that that violate convention. And people can say that, you know, they you know, they can say that because these people came to the country undocumented that they don't or shouldn't experience the same rights. But what does that say about us as a country if that's something that we're going to employ as a policy? Ellie. Yeah, two two thoughts. Um one that, you know, um, I think it's a Southwest Key, it's called. Uh, There's a employee, Antar, I forgot what his last name is. He recently quit because he was um, required to, 
um, tell this group of siblings that they're not allowed to hug and like, you know, had gotten in trouble with his supervisor the whole nine yards. They've said that, you know, that his supervisor has since been removed, but it's like the damage is done. And the other thing is, is that when children are displaying distress or signs of trauma, what ends up happening too is that they'll send them to another separate facility that has been known for injecting children with drugs and unauthorized or consent with parents. And then, so speaking to this idea, you know, that these people that are handling children are not qualified to handle American children, they're also treating them with psychiatric drugs without any sort of parental consent and signing themselves off as their authority and as their, like, guardian, essentially. And so, you know, and you know, we can get into the symptoms of that, um, but thinking about that in terms of it doesn't even qualify you, you've now decided in a for-profit, you know, detention center and treatment center for children with trauma... You're going to make money off of that. And then you're also going to sedate them. So I read reports of, you know, some of the social workers who are working with these um, with people who have crossed over illegally. Um, they have been signing away their uh, uh, power of attorney mm. and and leaving their children to these social workers so that they don't end up in the hands of the government. And Mm. I was just reading a report. There's one woman who literally has hundreds of kids that she could potentially be, uh, have custody of just because the parents just don't want their children to disappear into the system. Yeah. Cause they see then the effect of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, when I, as a parent, when I, when I think about this, um, and I think about what if I was on the run, what if uh, what if there, my village was under siege? What if somebody wanted to kill me and I had to get away and I grabbed my baby and my children and I went to the border and when I got to the border, they took my children away. They took my children. They didn't tell me where they were and then they deported me. And now my children, I have no idea where they are and 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 they have lost some children in some cases and it disturbs me immensely beyond the politics and, and and the legislature. I am so deeply concerned about the way we are behaving as a country. Um, it's not about the outcry against this because there's plenty of outcry against this, but it's the fact that our, the machinery of our government continues to propagate this and it's utterly barbaric. And uh, that, that, somebody would take my child from me. There's no reason for it. There, I, it would be illegal for someone to walk in uh, to take your child from you if, they, if there wasn't any just cause, like you weren't endangering a child's life. So it's, 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 it's so deeply shocking. Like out of, out of the many things that have come from this administration that I have completely disagreed with, this has to be one of the most shameful things they've engaged in. I mean, there's nothing more defenseless as a human being than a child or a baby even for mm. you to just take it from its mom. That's to me, that's cruelty and torture and, and, and there isn't an excuse for it. Yeah. I know with, um, I had seen this posted originally in social media, but genocidewatch.org and, and which has been sponsored by various human rights organizations, they've laid out the 10 stage. This is actually done originally by an academic, but there are 10 stages of genocide and we're at step eight separating children from their parents is step eight. And it's like, if we're at eight out of 10, like, this is no longer a government that, you know, this is fascism, I'm going to say. It. And so it's like, you know, um, the Nazis did it. I yeah. mean, I know a lot of people got angry when somebody said that. But yeah, the Nazis. It was did a it director too. from ICE who said that they shouldn't be compared to Nazis because they were just following orders, which. So did the Nazi ironic. stormtroopers. They were following orders. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a whole study about how, you know, a lot of people, you know, um, when Germany was under the Third Reich, were just doing their jobs, normal people. And it's not an excuse when somebody tells you to do something wrong. You know, you, ha- you have your own uh, sort of, you have to answer to yourself. Yeah, yeah. There's one story that stuck out to me, and I was just looking at it on ABC News, of a woman who she was detained and her child was taken away from her. And that child eventually became adopted. Um, the adoptive parents changed the child's name and now refused to give the parent any rights to see the child. And the court found that because the mother entered into the country undocumented, that she put, basically she put her, her child in harm's way. And that's why her parental rights were terminated. And I wonder if this is going to be the status quo for these cases. Are these are these children just going to be put into the adoption system? Um, are they going to just be, you know, are their parents' parental rights going to be terminated as they're, you know, sent back to their native countries and then these children will be adopted by American families? What does that, what does that mean? How, how is that not yeah. kidnapping? I mean, that's what they did with Operation Baby Lift in South Vietnam. You know, mm-hmm. they like, it's the lack of communication that you're giving to the mother ultimately. It almost feels like trickery. There's this insidiousness to it where you're signing your rights away, not really knowing that. And then when that is kind of removed, it, I don't know. It's basically, I, I agree with you, Ori. Well, it's like, what do we do at this point? And it's something that has been happening historically in you know, colonized countries. If you look at Canada and and how many native children were removed, you look at here in the United States, going back to slavery when black children were separated and sold and Mm. and throughout history, other marginalized communities, it's almost like this is a tactic that is employed time and time again by people in power to basically take away any semblance of normalcy from marginalized communities. It happened in Israel in a couple of instances, if I can butt in. Um, Yemeni babies, there's a case of uh, Yemeni Jewish children being taken away from families, as well as uh, other Mizrahi communities, uh, non-Ashkenazi, non-white Jewish communities, taken away and raised as other people's children. Mm. Why would we want more children? I mean, the foster care system is overwhelmed. It's overwhelmed. It's unacceptable. I mean, with the number of, of, of documentaries people have done on foster care and how, uh, how, this, uh, how many children are, are in danger, dangerous situations in these foster care situations. And while there are some that are, are good situations, they're only temporary situations, these foster care situations. Well, and I'm curious, too, not to monetize it even more but this obviously brings a financial cost even if you're paying for-profit detention centers to house undocumented people and documented children that comes at a cost to the federal government where is this money coming from we don't i thought we didn't have money for things how is this being funded i mean you, that's an excellent point i mean we're we refuse to fund like so many other needed programs and now we're taking on the financial burden of of seizing children Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Did you have something you wanted to add since you wanted, you butted in late? Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for my lateness. This is train trouble. Blame the trains, the yes. trains. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, but, they're crowded because of New York City Pride. Yeah, right. Let's got, blame it on the gay people. I got, no. <laughs> I got to see some great outfits, though. Yes. So. Always. Yes. That was my morning commute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lots of rainbows today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only thing I have to say, and I'm, I think you've covered this already, is it's about control. It's about imposing the will of the state on people and what's the best way to what better way to do that than to get young people to uh seize them seize the core of families and keep families apart i mean so do you see this as purely like an evil action yes taking children is evil i think well no no, sometimes when we when we assess the government oh i don't think it's for people's own good um you know i'm sure that I, the the government has put it under the guise of for their own good. You know, even Obama, when he was running similar programs, said uh, this will discourage people from bringing their children into danger. But you know, ultimately, kids are their their betterment is with their families, and they they experience a lot of trauma when they're taken away. I mean, it's it's very you know that's true. How could it be in the best interest of a nine month old baby to leave their mother, who is probably breastfeeding them? To some stranger who may or not may or may may or may not be qualified to take care of that baby, and on top of it, force them to represent themselves in court. Ch- ba- children have to do that, you know, like in the whole process of that, and like essentially coaching, um, you know, a three-year-old to talk in front of a judge is insane. And hearing people justify that as well, actually, this was interviews I think on the Daily Show and on John Oliver as well. What? Like, I'm sorry, were we running out of, you know, uh, like the federal law that is like access to representation? Like American children, (laughs) uh, especially at three or four years old, are not permitted to appear in court. Yeah. And then let alone have, you know, a nine month old, a two year old, a three year old present themselves in front of an immigration judge is ridiculous. So they'd have to have some sort of advocate to speak on their behalf. Usually it would be a parent. Usually. In this case. And then when they take them away, it's like, what do you do? And, you know, these officers kind of just like justified and they kind of are, you know, and I've had a judge, there was also an interview with a judge trying to justify this. And I'm like, you're a judge. You should know better. (laughs) Like, But that's the whole point, I guess. I mean, that's the shocking part of it is that we have all these government officials who are well-trained, some well-educated and who deal in immigration and, I don't understand how this decision, how they came to this decision, except for as Violet pointed out, that it's it's an aggressive it's an aggressive action. It's definitely not for the betterment of of the children, Um, and I don't know how they reason that to themselves. Because as you pointed out, um, a child should remain with its mother even if it if even if the child made a dangerous crossing obviously whatever they were running from was more dangerous right that's usually how it works when Mm. you're on the run what you're running from is worse than than what you're running through right (laughs) if you take your child into a potentially dangerous situation you're making a call against other danger you're you're moving away from and that's the narrative that you don't hear in the conservative view- viewpoint mm-hmm. you don't hear that at all similarly with um europe's kind of quote unquote problem with the re- the refugee crisis is that it's the fact that like if a mother is willing to bring herself and her child on an overcrowded boat not knowing how to swim not oftentimes not having life jackets the water is safer than when you're coming from that's where a lot of these nas- like you know these nationalist groups that are you know 
coming up further in Europe, you know, the same kind of similar problem that we have, do not see. I'm like, how is water safer than this situation that they're currently in? That says a lot to to me as well. So no, just thinking about across the pond as well. So yeah, and I one thing that one one perspective to me that's that I'm so fascinated with is I want to hear from ICE, not like not for them to tell me that that this, these are their orders or to show up and take people um, and read people's well they don't read people's rights, but um, I want to hear from them. How do they feel about what they're doing? To me, that's a lost perspective, as well as the people on the border. I want to know, like, at the very far ends, what's happening. So, and you know what? This is the perfect time. Are you ready for the parka? Let's talk about the parka. Oh, goodness. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead and laugh, because there's nothing more absurd than the first lady meeting desperate people with a rude message on her back <laughs> for them. <laughs> Go ahead, Violet. Take this one away. Sure. Uh, so um, First Lady Melania Trump uh, made a surprise visit to a uh, um, child detention center, I believe in Texas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she was wearing a green, a stylish green parka. Um, I believe it was from some mass market store. Zara, I think it was 20 bucks H&M or yeah. no, $50. Bucks. $39 from Zara, I heard. And it said on the back in sort of like sloppy, creative white writing, I don't really care, do you? And the U was the letter U. I hate uh, when people do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was like one of the more insulting parts of this. So... Everyone asks, what's going on? <laughs> what was going through her mind? You know, is this her winking at uh, the Trump base and saying, um, I'm doing this for the publicity, but I stand with you? Was she not thinking about it? Was this a fashion decision she made early in the morning? You know, the, the, uh, the wardrobe detectives were not there to check her before she no. left. It was on her back. I have heard so many stories from, oh, she didn't know what was on her back. She didn't read it. Oh, she has a stylist. Obviously, she didn't pick her clothes. First of all, she was a fashion model for a long time. If you're going to tell me that she does not meticulously pick what she wears, I don't know what to say. Like, I just can't possibly believe that. Now, outside (laughs) of the context, it's a cute jacket. Like, I would wear it because it's cute. Right, but in we have to look at all of the the optics are deplorable, and I'm I usually I'm not that opinionated, but the, come on, yeah. like anybody that's worked heartless, just just it's it's messy, it's messy, and I don't understand how nobody no nobody in her circle yeah. would have been like, hey, so <laughs> maybe you should wear a different jacket. Right. And they, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to be that person, but uh, First Lady Michelle Obama got critiqued for so many of her fashion choices, none of which were wearing a jacket that said she didn't care about things. Right. So I just, it's, it's so interesting on so many levels. And, you know, to the people that don't think we should be, you know, critiquing her fashion, 99% of the time, I don't care what she wears. And, and she usually dresses very well. Right. I don't understand what this I don't understand what happens like I don't I don't get it I just, it's totally absurd I just blows my mind I That's thought it was a joke until I saw it wasn't a joke 
it can't be a joke. You're on a mercy mission and you wear a jacket. This is I really don't care. Yeah. Well, no, I thought that I thought it was like you know I thought that it was like a, a photoshopped or something like that. Like I didn't oh, believe like a meme? it was right. real. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, no, it's not. And then you realize, wait, it's not. It's actually this is actually. <sighs> I thought it was a joke. This is America. Well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's funny because it's like okay, so like. It's it's the most serious issue that we're dealing with. We're all taking it incredibly seriously. But all of the same people who take this seriously, it worked. You know, it's a it's very distracting to think about like what was she thinking? What were her choices? True. What was she doing? True. Did she believe so this? True, so like it's not really derailing anything, but like it's enough to like spark our curiosity and take us for a minute away from it. It got some some clicks. Right. Mm-hmm. I forgot about the Trump smokescreen where if something bad is happening, yeah. they a prostitute appears or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or any number of things happen that don't matter. Yeah. But everyone hones in on them and don't and they end up not paying attention to the seriousness the of the think pieces come and we analyze it on morning talk and everybody, you know, tries to right. figure out what's happening. Why well, don't watch Forget her talk. parka. Yeah. Forget her parka. It's not we're about not gonna, the parka. We're not gonna talk about the parka. <laughs> Instead uh, we're going to go to a break and we'll be joined by a special guest who has firsthand knowledge about the actions of ICE on the border. She joins us live by phone from Tucson, Arizona in just a moment. Make sure to check out RadioFreeBrooklyn.com. Discover all the shows we offer and you can take us with you. Just download the Radio Free Brooklyn app in the App Store or Google Play. We'll be right back with more Objection to the Rule after this short break. <laughs>
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. It w- that was Pride, A Deeper Love by CNC Music Factory in honor of New York City Pride today. You will see so many rainbows today. We are continuing our discussion about the state of immigration our nation, in our nation with special guest Devorah Gonzalez. She's an organizer for School of the Americas Watch, a nonviolent grassroots movement working to close centers that train military, law enforcement, and border patrol. Dev, thanks for coming uh, for coming on to Objection to the Rule. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, Dev, let's start with a few questions before we move into the discussion. Um, let's start with you. Tell us about yourself and what you do and what inspires you to do it. Okay, well, my name is Deborah Gonzalez. I am... A first-generation Central American, um, my parents uh, migrated to the United States in the 1980s, and now I'm part of School of the Americas Watch, which is a grassroots organization that is responsible for holding the United States accountable for the violations of human rights um, and the trainings of state actors that have carried out these human rights violations in Latin America. And what, is this, what has inspired you to be involved in this work, to dedicate your life to this? Um, I mean, it's the fact that human rights are, like, we, we all have human rights, right? And so the, the violations and the militarization that's happening on the border and the way that it's worsened throughout the years is really, like, something that I think we should be paying attention to. Can you just... Um describe the journey of a person crossing the border and all the struggles and risks they have to take? Right. Um, well, that's, I mean, I, I think the struggles start at home, right? So the destabilizing, the destabilization of the countries. Right now, a lot of the people that are crossing are from Central America, and a lot of people are from Honduras. Honduras in 2009 suffered a coup in 2017 had mass protests because of electoral fraud and there are currently I believe five political prisoners in Honduras right so there's a mass repression of anyone that stands against the current dictatorship so a lot of people are fleeing Um, a lot of the situation in Honduras has been backed by the United States and supported by the United States so in the way that people are fleeing, they're finding themselves having to cross the Guatemala-Mexico border, which is a border that has been militarized um, through the funding of the United States as well, through um, Alliance for Prosperity, Plan Merida, um, and Plan Frontera Sur, right, which are initiatives that have been backed, the United, by, backed by the United States and militarized the Mexico-Guatemala border. So... Aside from having to cross that border, having to cross through Mexico, which where also they experience a lot of human rights violations, a lot of migrants disappear or murdered along the way. This is where they're very vulnerable, having to cross through Mexico and then getting to the U.S.-Mexico border, finally a second border um, for people of Central America. Um, can you be specific about? Can you be specific about the dangers that they encounter? Yes. Um, well, when they encounter at the border, in, in the U.S.-Mexico border, I mean, 
aside from tactics that the United States and the Border Patrol implements, like search and scatter tactics, that it's specifically that, right? People are scattered throughout, so they run. They lose sight and control of where they're of where they're at, of where the group is, and this is where a lot of people die and disappear, and they don't tend not to have enough water for these kinds of situations. So it's a very specific Border Patrol tactic that is murdering people and disappearing people at the border, and a lot of the situations that we hear are the lack of water. Right now, this is the summer, so the the, inc- the temperatures here in Tucson are about over 100 degrees, and that means that in the desert, it can get up to 120 degrees, right? That you need to have enough water to be making long hikes during the day or at night. Um, aside from the environmental dangers, there's the dangers that are also implemented by the militarization. Um, there have, have been some videos released recently by a grassroots organization called No More Death that's located here in Tucson, Arizona, and they recorded Border Patrol slashing gallons of water and that they would put out. There are people right now that are facing felony charges for leaving water in the desert. There's people that are being charged with misdemeanors for littering and providing water to people that are crossing. So there's a lot of physical risk that people are facing when they're crossing the U.S.-Mexico state um, border aside and the desert, right, aside from the dangers that they face to even get here. Are they walking? Well, how are they getting uh, crossing all these borders? A lot of it is by foot, correct. And how many, um, so do you know how many miles, like if somebody, let's say somebody is crossing from Honduras, how many miles have they walked on foot if they take the journey on foot? Do you know? Well, I, I can't tell you that. What I can tell you, though, is that Tucson is about 65 miles from the border. Um, there is a checkpoint that is in between Tucson and Nogales. Um, and this checkpoint is an area where a lot of people cross. I mean, I don't think the amount of miles really is that big difference. If you're walking in 120 degree heat, how much can you walk, actually? So and, let's put it in that perspective. Yeah. And so, if they're if they're walking on foot, what is? Um, I just want to get a clear picture of 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 the people that are trying to cross. I mean, do they have shoes? Do they have all their things strapped to their back? Um, do they travel in groups? Um, how do they get their food and water and and shelter along the way? Well, the food and shelter is provided by humanitarian groups. Um, medical aid is provided by humanitarian groups. Food and water is donated along the way. Um, shoes are probably tattered, and if you know the Arizona, the Sonora Desert landscape, you know that there's a lot of cactus. So when they're crossing, they end up with a lot of injuries in their feet, a lot of um, thorns stuck on their feet. Um, yeah, but there, it, I, and I can't really tell you exactly one way that a person is crossing, right? But I can tell you that it can be a combination of cars and walking, and a majority of it is walking. The majority of it, I mean, I know that you've heard of Levis, yeah, for example, which is a train that a lot of people used to take to cross 
to get along Mexico. So there's a lot of different journeys that people take. But the bottom line is that to get here and to cross this desert, this U.S.-Mexico border, the militarized zone here in Tucson, Arizona, people are dying and people are disappearing. There is not enough water that a person can carry in 120-degree weather. And that is right now in the summer, that is what we are facing. Um, we are looking at a day today in Tucson that's probably going to get into the hundreds. We've definitely been getting into the 110s in the city, right? So the desert is much hotter. What is the government, you mentioned earlier, what is the, uh, a little bit of this earlier, what is the government doing at the border? So these people are coming to cross and there is a whole, all these different types of government officials. What is exactly happening at the border? Well, they are implementing cruelty. Um, they are implementing, they're militarizing the border, which is making it more difficult for people to get across Um West people are getting towards the more um, rural areas of the desert, there's a lot more death that is happening, a lot of more disappearance, because if a person like passes away in an area that is very rarely walked by foot, the chances of their body being found are very slim before nature gets in the way. Again, 120-degree weather decomposes a person's body, right? So death and disappearance is one thing that is definitely happening at the border. The other one is the U.S. is tactically implementing, like, torture tactics. They're implementing scatter and search tactics, which, for example, it will be a helicopter tracing a group and then get to the group, scatter them about, right? So they no longer know where any of their remaining like group members are, they um, lose track of which way is north, south, so they're disoriented. And this is where a lot of, again, people die because of these search and scatter tactics. Another thing I mentioned is that as humanitarian groups are offering aid, human, uh, are, they're offering aid, either medical aid or water, the water gallons are being slashed. The aid is being shut down. Just recently in um, 2000, the end of 2017 or early 2018, there was a raid in the No More Death camp. No More Death, like I mentioned, is an organization here that offers humanitarian aid and they had a desert in the, they had a camp in the desert, which where they were offered medical evacuation, medical help. And that there was a raid. I mean, that's been shut down. There are people that are facing felony charges. So this is what's happening in the desert. In the desert, this is what's happening in the borderland. In increased militarization, increased persecution of people that are offering humanitarian aid, and at, on top of that, incredible traumatizing of children and kidnapping of children from their parents. So this is the worst thing that we've seen so far. Is the situation that's happening with the children, right? Um, and preventing anyone from asking for political asylum, even though the United States is very much involved in the creation of the situations that drive people to come to the United States and, and ask for political asylum. So a lot of hypocrisy is what's happening, too. Hey, Dev, uh, this is Violet speaking now. Thank you for coming on the show. 
One question I had for you, you mentioned uh, your parents are immigrants from Central America and you now have a child of your own. So I'm curious on a personal level, how does this um, this kidnapping of children, of migrant children by the U.S. government, how does it sit with you? How does it hit you? What are your thoughts from that perspective? Well, I think that anyone that has a heart or anyone that is human at the very least should feel for these children. I'm on in a personal level. I'm angry at the situation. I was coming back from Nogales, um, Sonora, and walking, and I saw several people on the side that were asking for political asylum, and including several children that were there with their parents, um, just camped out because. Border Patrol is not allowing them to actually get to the checkpoint and ask for political asylum. So they're supposed to get to an agent and then ask for political asylum. That's where they're supposed to get processed. But that is being stopped right now. Like this, it honestly, it makes me angry to see all the people that are camped out right there. So when I was crossing back with my child, we too were asked, like we were asked for our IDs before we can even get into the checkpoint. I mean, that's, we have like, we can, we have the privilege to cross over back and forth, but the reality is that those people that are right there waiting, their lives are in danger, and it, I think that it's time that we all become aware of the situation, and we all, like, take some steps for action, so that's, these, these are the thoughts that come to my mind whenever I think of these children. Dev, I know that your son, Talek, am I saying the name correctly? Uh-huh. Um, he comes with you a lot on a lot of the work you do, and he witnesses some of these, some of the things that are happening on the uh, on the border. What are the some of the things he says, and how does he react to what he sees? Um. Well, I think I do a lot of work of having conversations with my son, um, and we have conversations about the current political situation. And so that's kind of the, the things that he, he hears. Like, he's he's a little kid, right? So I think he's still analyzing the world around him. But I think also he realizes that certain things are not okay. Now that you mentioned the political situation, um, what do you think of the situation under Trump before uh, because we know that a lot of this, including uh, family separation at a smaller scale and infant detention was happening under Obama and other presidents. So I'd like to know how you answer that question. Is it better under Trump? Who makes um, who makes his oppression plain and sparks the outrage machine? Well, I mean, I think first I want to clarify something is that family separation is, has not been at a smaller scale. Family separation has been very much part of the migrant experience for a long time. I mean, since the border was created and to the migrant, to the communities that live along the border, um, there's been family separation through the Bracero program, for example. There's been history of family separation since the creation of the border. Um, What we are seeing now, though, is more more of a visible, torturous separation of families at the border, right? So there's actually tearing apart of families and putting children in jail. That's the part that's new, 
right? So there's more cruel family separation. I think that there's a big difference. The family separation has always happened, but this way of doing it is incredibly torturous. Um, so I think that the increased militarization, like, definitely took off under, like, Obama deported the, the most number of people of any president, right? But he did not start military, like, militarizing the border. That actually came before him, right? So the privatization of detention centers started in the 1980s, right? And so the first private prison, co- the private detention contract was in 1983, I believe, or 1984. So this has been a long time planning, right? What I see now under Trump is just taking over this foundation, this legacy that has been laid out for him and really increasing the amount of cruelty that is that is happening. Because I really do believe that taking children from their parents is incredibly cruel, right? I, I've agreed with a lot of things that have been said on this radio. On this program, of, there is no reason that a nine-month-old should be representing themselves in front of an immigration judge. That makes no sense. Right, so all these things and the way that it's increasing, um, it, it really is for profit. And to to see that this is happening for profit is is really disgusting. So I don't think I I think that things are definitely are definitely worse than under Trump. But I don't think that he's created this deportation machine. Right, I, I think that he's caring about a foundation that has been laid out for him. Do you think that uh, Trump's like outright, really awful, really cruel, and really uh, public actions? Do you think that's going to change the way uh, Border Patrol works? Do you think people are angry enough and aware enough now that the same things that were going under on under Obama would meet a new challenge? Well, I think that. Border Patrol has a lot of power because they go unchecked. Um, even within themselves, they have very limited, like, checks and balances, internal affairs. Like, they, it, really, they have so much impunity to kill. I mean, let me, like, let me mention Jose Antonio Elena Rodriguez, who was murdered in 2012, in November 2012. And, he was shot at least eight times in the back. His, the agent that shot him, Lonnie Schwartz, was recently acquitted for second-degree murder, right? So in this very obvious blatant case of murdering someone, like, there was still, like, there was no no justice for the family of Jose Antonio, right? There was, there's going to be retrials starting again in October 23 for the lesser charges, but Lonnie Schwartz can no longer be tried for second-degree murder. Um, so I think that the situation at the border, right, it's, the Border Patrol has a lot of power here and a lot of impunity here. Um, I think that even that people being aware of this is definitely a first step, but also the next step is limiting the power that Border Patrol has, this unchecked power that is allowed to happen that I have. I wanted to go into 
to ICE, um, to Immigration Customs Enforcement, and not only actions that they're taking at the border, but the actions that they're taking across the country, whether they're getting onto Greyhound buses and checking documentation, they're checking documentation on roadways, they're deferring people out of, you know, they're checking, you know, when police are pulling people over and checking for driver's license, those police departments are then contacting ICE and then they're being detained. Um, what is your perspective of this seeming growth of power and uh, this interjection of ICE into so many different communities and so many different parts of the country where aren't even they aren't even necessarily close to a border crossing? And what does that do uh, to immigrant communities it just mentally? I, I mean, fear. I think fear is the big thing that they're implementing, right? I mean, these people are living in a constant state of fear. Not just fear from ICE, but maybe fear from going back to their home countries. I mean, right? So that's definitely one of the things that they're implementing. And I think that ICE checking and, like, Border Patrol checking documents as people are crossing the Greyhound station. Again, it's not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, Back in 2013, there was a huge, like, influx of undocumented, of unaccompanied minors that were coming to the border areas. I don't know if anyone in this program remembers that situation, but here in Tucson, we had a lot of families that were being released, mothers and children after being held in detention, um, because children have been held in detention for many years, right? But they just, they were allowed to be with their parents. Um, so when, after these children and their parents were released from detention and dropped off at the Greyhound station, we would talk to them, right? Like there was a group of community support that was giving them food, that was giving them information about what their court date was going to be, was like walking them through different steps and also telling them, hey, if Border Patrol gets into this vehicle, then show them this paper, right? So Border Patrol, that's been a fear from people for a while, right? And in order, like traveling across the country is not always very possible. Greyhound stations are checked by Border Patrol and has been checked by Border Patrol or ICE. Um, So this, like, growth of power is, like, I mean, I think, I I definitely think it's increasing, but I also think that they're definitely functioning in the way that it's been proposed to be functioning for a long time. What are some of the, um, the inhumane treatment that you have actually witnessed at the border? Well, let me mention this report um, called Deprivation Not Deterrence, and you can find it online. Um, Deprivation Not Deterrence, we interviewed a lot of these families and children that were being dropped off and wrote down their experiences. And what we saw is that these children were not receiving adequate water. They were not receiving adequate food. A lot of the food that they were receiving was rotten um, and it was not enough even for, like, a child. Like, what is the maximum number of, like, calories that a person should take in? But, like, it wasn't enough. Like, it was it was not nutritious food, right? And so, and then the lights were left on so that people lost track of what was day and what was night. So they didn't know how many days they had been in detention. Children were 
kept in rooms and overcrowded rooms with their parents, but with no space to run around. I mean, parents were threatened um, by Border Patrol that they were going to take away their kids, for example. And I mean, those threats are actually being true now. Um, so these are a lot of the things in direct information that I have heard from women and children. I mean, I interviewed women, pregnant women that were not given any medical care um, while they were in Border Patrol like custody. I'm curious to know um, as we get towards the end of the show, now that there is more of a visibility, what should we as people who have now seen this that may not people that are, you know, just waking up to it or, or now understand more of the dynamics of what is happening and are, you know, feeling just as disgusted or, or, or saddened by these actions, what can we do? What can the public do? What should we be doing to not only carry this conversation forward, but take action to prevent what's happening? Okay. Well, I think that having these conversations is definitely a first space. And the first time I can tell you what we're going to be doing as an organization, SOA Watch, what's going to be doing as an organization is we are putting together an event on November 16th or 18th, which is at the border, and it's in direct resistance to, um, to U.S., like, to U.S. foreign policy, to U.S. intervention, to the militarization at the border, to the torture tactics that the U.S. takes and has entrains and, and distributes throughout Latin America, right? And it's a direct answer and demand to respond to the situation that is happening right now. So on November 16th or 18th in Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Sonora, School of the Americas Watch, um, is going to be having this event. You can find it at soaw.org. Um, we'll be posting more information on there. So I think that is definitely one of the, that for us is the step that we're taking, but also the things that you can do on a regular basis to support the organizations that are doing this work, right? Well, how are you, how are you putting information out there, right? Are you supporting protests that are happening in your community? Are you raising awareness of what is happening around in your community, right? Because New York also has, like, you know, also has ICE, also has, like, a lot that's happening right now. So what is happening in that area and how are you supporting and being in direct resistance to that? How are you showing solidarity? Um, I think it comes with our everyday actions, too, and in exposing the situation. Well, thank you for joining us, Dev, in the studio. And thank, well, thank you, you for having me. Thank you so much for, 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 uh, for sharing your experiences and discussing this incredibly um, important topic um, in our country. Um, well, that's all the time we have for this show. Stay tuned to Radio Free Brooklyn coming up. We have What is Love with Sasha Sugar. Check out all... Radio Free Brooklyn shows online or through our mobile app available on iTunes and Android. And help Radio Free Brooklyn stay on the air by visiting our website at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and making a donation. Just one click to donate. 
Our thanks again to Deb for joining us on the phone. For all of us here, thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule. See you next week.